one thing that I have always pushed for, my co-founder has always pushed for, is always this concept of justice capitalism, which is doing well and doing good is by no means mutually exclusive. You need to create a win-win construct and make each stakeholder feel good and calculate outcomes for them. And that's what businesses should do. And that's why businesses should exist. Businesses shouldn't exist extracting value. Businesses should exist creating value for all stakeholders involved. And companies that have done, done that have outperformed and will stand the test of time. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to our first new interview of 2023, a conversation with Wamimo Abbey, the co-founder and co-CEO of Isuzu. We recorded our conversation on December 16th. Isuzu Financial is a prop tech fintech business started in 2018 by two guys then in their mid to late 20s, and is a company now, four to five years later, valued at over a billion dollars. Wamimo and his co-founder, Samir Goel, co-founded Isuzu as a social business enterprise to help low-income people in this country move into the financial system. As they fine-tuned their business model, they came up with a model wherein Isuzu reports rent payments to credit bureaus to allow lower-income people to use on-time rental payment history to start building up their credit scores. It's a simple idea with a big need since so many of our country's lower income renters do not have access to financial services. And this enables them to start the savings and then growing into other financial services needed to climb the ladder to financial stability. The company has grown like wildfire over its few short years and is now collecting data from about 50% of the National Multifamily Housing Council's top 100 owners and managers. And we talk in the podcast about how the apartment industry has embraced the concept and business model. It's one of those win-win-win businesses. And both Wamimo's personal story and the Isuzu business model and evolution is as compelling a story as I've heard. Makes for a great leading voices conversation. I hope that you had a great holiday season and wishing you a wonderful 2023. I'm figuring that for the search business, like the real estate business, 2023 might be all about helping our clients plan for what will hopefully be a very short downturn, which really means planning for the next cycle and what kind of focus our client companies will have and the teams they'll bring to the table for the next go-round. At CRG, we're able to do search as well as business advisory consultants, so that robust set of services around the human element gets to what companies need as they think about the broad requirements of their business platform and the competitive market going forward. We will continue to explore these topics as part of the conversations on Leading Voices. You can now find our archive at zrgpartners.com slash leadingvoices. As always, if you're enjoying the show, please share this or another favorite episode with a friend. This one in particular is a good one to share with a young person thinking about how they'll climb the mountains they find in their own careers. And the Isuzu story to date will inspire anyone about prop tech businesses scaling so quickly and a socially motivated business at that. Definitely a conversation to share. Please follow us on your favorite podcast app, rate us if you have a few minutes, and feel free to share ideas and guest suggestions and feedback with me on my email at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. Enjoy the episode. Wamimo, Abby, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate for our guests introduce yourself, talk about what your business is, what is Isuzu, what's it mean, what's it about, and then we're going to drill down on all kinds of things. You got it. Thanks a lot for for having me. 
every time we talk about Isuzu, it's always custom for us to go down memory lane and talk about the why of the business in the first place. So personally for me, Isuzu has a, you know, a personal connection as to why I wake up every morning and all my colleagues at Isuzu to do what we do. Personally, I grew up in the slums of Lagos, Nigeria. I lost my dad at the age of two and I was raised by my mother and two very spirited sisters. And one thing my mother fundamentally believed in was the power of education. Despite having less than an high school degree herself and worked at the post office for over 21 years, she afforded my school fees to one of the finest high school in the land. And that's what led me to this magical place called America. I immigrated from 80 degree weather in Lagos to negative 22 degrees in Minnesota, uh-huh. which was a character building experience. And during that transition, something important happened. My mother and I did not have a credit score. When your mother knew education was important, where did that come from? And then how did she find the means to get you well enough educated there to then come maybe with a scholarship to to Minnesota? And then did she come with you to Minnesota? If you go back a little bit, my mom actually came to the United States in the 70s under the Jimmy Carter administration because the Nigerian government had a good relationship with the American government because of oil. Uh Nigeria is one of the largest oil exporters in the world. So my mother had been to the United States and then she went back. So she had access to come to the United States, right? Whenever she she wanted to. Um, But me, I had never been to the United States. When she came to the United States, was this as a tourist or was she doing work or business or? As a tourist, just as a tourist. Back then in the 70s, Nigeria's currency was actually stronger than the US dollar, believe it or not. (laughs) <laughs> it was just a tourist check out the United States. It was easy. This is pre 9-11. Um, but when I came, my mom, my mom was also here. And, but the biggest struggle for us was just access to credit, right? You know, like we walked into one of the biggest banks to borrow money. We turned away and had to go borrow money at over 400% interest rate. And my mother sold my dad's ring. We borrowed money from church members, and that's how we got started in the United States. So really inspired by that experience, we started the company on three core premises. No matter where you come from, the color of your skin and your financial identity shouldn't determine where you end up in the wealthiest nation the world has ever seen. Fair deal. And you move here with your mom. You go to University of Minnesota. This interest rate that you're talking about and the lack of credit is here in the States, not in Nigeria. It's actually very interesting. So in Nigeria, it's even more complex. Right. In Nigeria, it's harder to get access to capital. In some cases, when I was growing up at least, right, getting access to capital could be a derivative of your father's last name, right? Who do you know? Right. And then that's how they give you leverage. It still happens here in the United States, but you have this thing called the credit score that can make yeah. it a little bit more objective. But the credit score fundamentally leaves certain population behind because it doesn't take into account if you're an immigrant and you're coming here, you have a blank slate. So that's where the conundrum actually kicks in. But from in Nigeria, it, it's, it could be worse when I was growing up at least, but there's a lot of technological innovation that's making it easier. So when I got to the University of Minnesota, Crookston actually, so that's like the sister campus on the Northwestern corner of Minnesota, close to North Dakota, one of the most beautiful yet flattest places in the world. I studied business management, marketing, and organizational psychology. And 
you know, during that time, I actually founded my first company, which was building affordable water infrastructure in developing countries. I was 17 years old. So I guess I've been on this entrepreneurial journey for 13 years. And now just for our listeners, because they don't see you, how old are you? I am 30 years old. 30 years old. So you've crossed, the, you've crossed that threshold of the zero there. <laughs> okay. I have. I have. Yeah, it's been, it's been a journey. It doesn't feel like it. A lot of things have happened from the age of 17 when I first set foot in this wonderful country, but immensely grateful for yeah. all the opportunities and experiences I've been afforded. Okay. You found your first company, which is an affordable water infrastructure project. Talk about that just a little bit, and then let's keep going. You got it. We were, after the Haiti crisis, the just the, the earthquake in 2010, mm-hmm. I don't talk about this a lot. I almost lost my life to typhoid in Nigeria, in boarding school. And, you know, looking at what was going on on TV, that reminded me of my own life. So I started a class project that eventually turned into a company that builds affordable water infrastructure in places like Haiti and other parts of um, the African continent, Nigeria, Ghana, Zimbabwe. And that company went on to provide access to water for over a quarter million people, specifically in schools, so people can get access to clean water and a good education. Congratulations on that. So then let's continue the story because we want to know what's next and what then got you ultimately to Isuzu. Yeah. So sequel to that, I went to New York University for graduate school to study development finance. And it was based on this premise that I could leverage my business acumen from undergrad and then my own experience in international development to make the African continent and hopefully the world at large a more fair place. Mm-hmm. So one of the projects I worked on in graduate school was mapping international aid dollars on the African continent. And during that experience, someone approached me and said, what happens if we actually buy this project from you? Right. So that transaction happened. I'm like, wow, I could create intellectual property and that could be acquired. And that was a class project. And that's what opened up my mind to technology. So I went on to investment banking. I went to, I went to a, a big bank, Goldman Sachs, and I went to PricewaterhouseCoopers doing mergers and acquisition, buying companies, selling companies, did that for over $30 billion in deal value. And my co-founder and I decided to quit and then do something bigger than ourselves, which is a SUSU. And what year did you quit those? So quit corporate America in 2018. 2018. Okay, go back for one minute because you mentioned a mapping project that you did while you were in graduate school. And is that what it was? Yes. So you have trillions of dollars that go into the African continent. And... One of the things that always bothers me is Africa has been looked at as this aid-reading continent and the resources placed in it are not that efficient. And what in graduate school, what I wanted to create was a map of all the institutions working on the African continent and find ways for them to essentially communicate and talk to each other, mm-hmm. right? And then they can share resources, lessons learned, and it's based on this idea that we're stronger together. Right. Um, so that was just a simple project, a map, a dot of where all they're situated. And then a company that had a huge grant to do the same work found me um, and said, wow, we're just going to pay you and acquire this intellectual property. And that's precisely what happened. 
it was my foray into technology and the power of technology to connect people. It's huge. Okay. And then how many years were you at Goldman and PwC together? Four years together at those great institutions. My experiences at PricewaterhouseCoopers and Goldman Sachs really trained me as a professional, right? When it comes to doing business, you need to think about a win-win outcome. I think I earned my stripes, not only talking about what's possible as an entrepreneur, but how things get done in an effective and an efficient manner. Um, so those institutions really instilled the technical skills, right, of understanding business and putting theory to practice. And I am immensely grateful for those institutions, for the opportunities they've afforded me because they set a solid foundation because I can create a vision, right. have a mission, and then have the operating powers thanks to the experience garnered at those institutions. And, and let me ask you a question. This is for our listeners who do less stuff in business. But if one of your lessons coming out was good business has to have a win-win outcome, uh, my before I got into business myself, I thought it was win-lose. Any thoughts on that and how that exemplified itself maybe at Goldman? Goldman, the former CEO of Goldman Sachs, Lloyd Blankfein, always talks about the fact that people are most important assets, right? And if you create a win-win construct, that's when you know you're doing something powerful. And I have taken that along with me at Isuzu. The current capitalist structure is one of this, you have a winner, you have a loser. Like that's just a, that's a construct. And one thing that I have always pushed for, my co-founder has always pushed for, is always this concept of justice capitalism, which is doing well and doing good is by no means mutually exclusive. You need to create a win-win construct and make each stakeholder feel good and calculate outcomes for them. And that's what businesses should do. And that's why businesses should exist. Businesses shouldn't exist extracting value. Businesses should exist creating value for all stakeholders involved. And companies that have done, done that have outperformed and will stand the test of time. My bet is simple. If you create a win-lose construct, your company or your institution will not stand the test of time. If you create a win-win outcome, not only will it stand the test of time, but it will create value and have a profound impact on the world. And that's what we should be focused on. Fair deal. Okay, so then you and Samir is your partner. What's yes. the concept? Because we st our listeners still don't know what a SUSO is. So what was your concept going into this? What was your concept leaping out of corporate America to make something happen? And then how did that something become this? So Samir, my co-founder, and I, you know, came from similar backgrounds. You know, Samir grew up in Schenectady, in New York, similar humble backgrounds. His parents came with him pregnant um, from New Delhi, India. And obviously my story coming from the slums of Lagos, Nigeria. We met at a Clinton Global Initiative Conference. President Clinton convinced students, either in graduate school or in undergrad, to come together to create projects that can make the world a more perfect place. And Simi and I kept in touch. And we met at Max Brenner's one day in Union Square, New York, a chocolate shop. Uh -huh. We were just talking about our experiences and saying, do we want to continue our work in corporate America where we're being promoted and elevated? Or do we want to do something bigger than ourselves to make the world a more perfect place? And the answer was the latter. We decided to set a date and put our money where our mouth is and decided to quit corporate America. I remember when I told my mom I was going to quit, 
I was paying my mother's rent at that point and she was like, well, I thought we made it. And she was emotional. My mom wanted me to just, you know, rise above my own individualistic concerns, the greater needs of society. And I owe everything I am to my mother today. So we quit. And when Isusu started, it was based on a simple idea of how do we create a company that a collective of people could save together and build wealth together. And what we learned quickly after a few years was people would save if they earned more money. But the main obstacle is they lacked leverage. And that's what this country was built on. So we listened to the population which we walk alongside with, and they told us that how can you help us get access to credit with a good credit score? And then Eureka moments came. People are not, when people pay their rent, you don't get any credit for that. But when you pay your mortgage, you get credit for it. It's, it's about time for us to give credit where credit is due. And that's what led to Isusu as, as it is today. You quit corporate America in 2018 with a goal. Did you have this concept for this business in mind? And how long before did that concept happen? When we quit corporate America, the goal was to create a company to help people live their financial best with the power of savings, right? And during that research process, when we launched the savings products, people told us that we would save if we earned more uh, or have better leverage. We cannot control what their employers pay them, uh-huh. but we sure can control how we give them better leverage, right? So that's what we did. We helped them find ways to help them establish or build their credit scores by reporting on-time rental payments data into the credit bureaus. Two questions. The leap that you took, we want to do good together. We want to find a business to do that. And the leap was already around the thought of financial financial issues for lower income populations. Correct. And then how, so that's what the concept was. How long before that became a, a actionable business model? And then how long before that got to renters? So from 2018, um, we had the savings product and we had a revenue generating approach from 2018, not at the scale we would like it to be. So we did that for 2018 and up until mid-2019. And then we start, we switched to this rental approach, making sure people could report their on-time rental payments into the consumer rating agencies in okay. 2019. And, and talk about the savings product. Again, part of what I'm trying to think about, particularly for our listeners as we talk about this, is here's two young guys, now 26, if I'm doing the math right, or 25, leaving good jobs in corporate America to do something that they care about. And the concept is around savings. Right. So to talk about the both the leap and then that evolution. So the hypothesis around savings was we had 76% at that time of Americans lived paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. Right. They didn't have a savings, obviously due to in large part of what happened in the 2008, 2009 financial crisis. So savings were depleted. And that's 70% and- you said, right? Back then, it was okay. 76% back 76% paycheck to paycheck, Correct. one flat tire away from homelessness. Exactly. And then what that, the operational definition of that is they have less than $400 in their bank accounts for an emergency event. We consider that a big issue. And our idea was, 
how do we get people to save as a collective, right? Myself, Devin, Matt wants to save $300. I need $300. Devin puts in $100 in a pot. Matt puts in $100 in a pot. Wami Mo puts in $100 in a pot. Month one, Wami Mo takes the $300, right? We've leveraged our community to essentially create wealth. We do the same thing month two, Matt takes it. We do the same thing month three, Devin takes it. So that was the idea initially. But what we found out during that process with it was people were missing out on their savings. Why? They had emergencies that came up, they had other obligations, and then they had a high debt that they had to essentially service. So it wasn't their fault. So we went back to them and say, folks, you're not saving. Why? What is the crux of the issue? And it talks about, look, we have high interest debts that we need to finance. Emergencies happen. It's not like we don't want to save. It's just that we don't earn enough to essentially manage all the expenses that comes in on a monthly basis. And then myself and Samia said, okay, what would help you get that leverage? They said, well, we need a better financial identity. So when we go into financial institutions, we can get better leverage. And it sounded familiar. I'm like, wow, my mother and I went through the same thing. How can we then help people from a data-driven standpoint with what they're already doing, get access to good credit scores? And that's when rent reporting came into play. We said, can we help people report on-time rental payments data to establish or build their credit scores? And 5% of them are renters because once again, if we go down memory lane, a lot, a lot of these people, right, in the early 1900s, right, 1920, 1930, were left out of getting access to homes via FHA programs or the VA programs because of the color of their skin or where they reside, right? So as you know, wealth begat wealth. So they've been left out of the equation. And now we had a good opportunity to essentially help right that wrong with what they're doing with their rental data. So when you have a mortgage, that data is factored in and that's your wealth building vehicle. But when you pay rent, which is roughly, you know, 50 to 60% of monthly expense for low to medium income folks, that data is now reflected huh. and they're not getting credit for doing that activity. Understood. And that's the reason why we created the technology. It's interesting because what, so you get to the credit score, what people will also say is get to access to credit and credit cards. That's dangerous. The credit score is the non-dangerous side of this equation, but the credit cards are the dangerous part because then you can eat, which means high interest rates. When did you, so this is 2019, 2020, you say, let's attack the renters. Now, it's right. now 2022 at the very end. So we're talking the year 20, the year 21, the year 22 to get you to where you are today. How do you attack this business model and this concept? So... 2019, we had the model of reporting rental data. Our strategy was to go to large owners and operators of real estate, the ones that own a lot of it, to essentially convince them to pay to report on-time rental data to help residents establish or build their credit scores. And in addition to that, when COVID hit in 2020, we found out that roughly 66% of the renters on our platform were not actually paying rent. So there was no data for us to report. <laughs> right. So what we decided to do is go to large philanthropic institutions that fund homelessness and ask them to commit a portion of their balance sheets 
to essentially prevent homelessness. So we offer zero interest rent relief to renters paid directly to their landlord. So they are not evicted. The landlord also has a good NOI. And then as a society, we're not solving homelessness backwards. And that's the win-win construct. Renter wins, landlord wins, and housing provider wins, and then society wins. This is how it works. We take the data from the property management company or the owner or the operator. We transform it and report it. The credit bureaus do not charge you to essentially report the data, Okay. right? We charge the housing provider or the property manager and say, look, when you report this data, this public data out there by institutions like TransUnion, that seven out of 10 renters will pay their rent on time if they know rental data is being reported, right? Number two, what we also did is when you report this data, two out of three residents said they would choose a property with rent reporting over one without it because they're actually getting credit for doing something that they were not getting credit for before. So now they're getting a credit for rental that they never knew they were getting. Therefore, they'll be a better tenant. And Camden, you're going to benefit from participating with us that way. Precisely. But then as you're making that pitch, we get into COVID. Now all of a sudden, we're in an upside down marketplace so that you're offering an additional service, which is to help with COVID rent relief. Yes. So with COVID rent relief, we went to the largest philanthropic institutions that usually fund homelessness. Right. Said, why are we funding homelessness when people are already on the streets? Can we actually do eviction prevention work? Mm -hmm. Right. And during COVID, a lot of people were not paying their rents because they were not earning money. So we created an infrastructure to essentially help people apply. We can cover up to $5,000 of rent, right? And then that money is paid directly to their property manager or the owner of the property, right? So it's not, it doesn't go directly to them. It actually goes to the owner or the operator of that real estate. We're, and that's what creates the win-win. Got it. And were you leveraging the federal rent relief program and doing the administrative part of that to help pay for this or no? We were, we recommended a lot of people to the federal rent relief program, uh-huh. um, but we did not officially administer any state's programs. What we did was secure philanthropic capital, right? Mm-hmm. Where people can apply, get rent relief, and then pay back that amount. It's essentially like a rent relief loan, pay back that amount. So other people could essentially get access to that money when they repay back. Since we're out of that period of time, how was the payback and did the amount of money given by the foundations all come back, partially come back? What was the track record of that part of it? So it performed better than we thought. You know, a lot of people, a lot of the foundations that gave it in expect it to come back, right? So initially we saw repayments in the 60, 70% range Obviously, with additional things, it's it's gone down and we forgive some of the loans in some cases also, but it performed better than we thought. And he also proved this idea that when you give people a fighting chance, they can actually prove you wrong um, in terms of they will pay back. If it seems solvable, you'll do it. If it seems like it doesn't matter and there's no way to get ahead through the process, then you're going to leverage the process to say who cares. Exactly. It's human nature. Exactly. 
Now talk about the growth and establishment of this business within the apartment industry and what either owners you're working with, Fannie Freddie you're working with, kind of talk through that stuff. And because now you're established part of the business. And again, we're still only in 2020 to get there. And now we're only at 2022. So you've done a lot in a short period of time. Yeah. So just tying this in a bow, right? Yeah. Rents reporting, making sure renters can get access to credit by paying their rent. If someone can afford to pay rent, making sure they have zero interest rent relief to make sure they stay in their homes and they are not evicted because we're not solving homelessness backwards. That win-win construct, when we went to investors to raise capital, right, essentially caught fire. They were really excited about it because we had the fortune of working with owners and operators like related companies. You know, one of the biggest owners and operators in the United States that really wanted to create this win-win construct for their renters and give them a fighting chance. We had others like BH Properties that we worked with in a management company that we've worked with since 2021. And we're doing this, you know, across many assets they have. Another one is Promise Homes, right? You know, ran by John Hope Bryant, whereby they're trying as much as possible to help renters live their financial best. All in all, we now work with over 50% of the NMHC um, owners and operators list which we're really proud of. And today, our owners have north of 3 million rental units in all 50 states. How much do you interact directly with the residents? And what's that interface look like? Because 3 million is a lot of people. It's 3 million rental units, so it's even more on a people basis. So what we do essentially is when we roll out a SUSU, the number one thing we control for is to make sure the property management team doesn't do additional work. If they do additional work, it distracts them from exactly what they're doing, which is to run the property. So we do all the rollouts. We communicate to the residents and say, hey, your management team partnered with ASUSU to help you report your on-time rental data. And by the way, if you can't afford to pay rent, there's this you know, program you can apply for. So we do all the communication. You know, Renters can also engage with us on our, what we call our ASUSU rental marketplace, where they can get you know, educational materials from Freddie and Fanny, where we have all those resources there. We also have a tool called Isusu Find Help, where they can put their zip code, you know, in a Google-like function and show them all the social services within their zip code. So renters have a, in a robust platform they can engage with, they can text us, they can call us, they can email us. We're there to support them. Because ultimately, Matt, we're in the trust building business. But your relationship winds up being with the owners. The relationship is a B2B relationship. The B2C is voluntary by the tenant resident finding you. If they don't find you, it doesn't matter. Their credit score is still improving and they're getting a credit track record, but they may be unaware of this. Exactly. So we just run seamlessly in the background. We run a B2B SaaS business where the owner operators pay for and then the renters can have the liberty to essentially say, hey, I want to, I don't want to participate because it's an opt-out model, or fully engage with us and leverage the full force of all the resources we provide, which we think is differentiated in the marketplace. Talk more about how you, A, got funded, because we didn't start there back in 19 or 18, 
and then how you then penetrated the business and were able to leverage relationships to get to 50% of the NMHC top 100? Funding for Isusu was hard. Um, you have a black guy and an Indian guy um, trying to essentially create technology for the real estate industry, which predominantly doesn't look like us. That's just the fact. Mm-hmm. Over 326 investors said no to us when we went out there to raise capital because it's hard to get along this idea of backing companies that support or you know work alongside low to medium income people. Uh, and they had their reasons and some of them were valid and some of them helped us along the way. But we had a lucky break when a large institution like Acumen America, which is an impact driven investment firm, decided to back us and led a seed round of financing in 2019. So we raised $1.6 million alongside other investors. And then the following year, following COVID and what we were doing, we had other investors come into play. So following that 326 no's, today SUSU has raised $145 million. We announced that Series B round of financing earlier this year, and the company is now valued at a billion dollars. Wow. Congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. You have that connection with people, and it's a really important part of business, which is that you're, you know, it's a great idea, and you're an entrepreneur, and you're pushing something, and it's creative, and it has a mission, it has a meaning, but also the personality of people and the personality of people together, particularly in the apartment business, is really connective. It's a relationship business. That's one thing that is quite clear um, when you look at the, the marketplace, right? It's a people business um, and people want to do business with they feel comfortable with. When I engage or when I build relationships, it's the business to decide, but who are you really? Yeah. And what are you trying to accomplish? And what's your why? And that's, those are the things I focus on. And everything tends to just work itself out. But there's a deeper why to that for most people, that business is about you're choosing a place to be, hopefully. The stuff, it's just all about like revisiting all the things that we do. And it's sort of like, you know, second nature and asking the why. And that's what we spend a lot of our time at Isuzu doing. It's just challenging the status quo and seeing if we can make it better, not relegate it, right. but seeing if we can better. You know, relationship plays a key role in the real estate industry. And one particular owner um, and operator that, you know, has a special place in our hearts and when we met, Matt was also on the panel. Yep. Uh, is Jeff Brodsky related? Yep. You know, Jeff, when we met him, we were early in the journey, early 2019, and gave us very pointed feedback and compelled us to think about a win-win construct for the owner, the resident, and society at large. And then also wanted us to have a good security posture so we can scale and do something nationwide. He always said, I don't care about solutions that would just, you know, serve two two states, right? Or nationwide. Come back and think about that. And that's what we did. You know, that process was painful. Uh, Myself and Samir likes to call it purposeful pain. And it helped us lay the foundation to build a susu on a solid foundation, not a sinking sand. So we're immensely grateful for all the support Jeff Brodsky and the greater related companies team provided. And today, you know, we're in most of their units across the country and have established credit scores for north of 10,000 people 
um, and you know deployed uh, millions now in rents relief. Yeah. So, and now you know when you have a related companies that owns roughly seventy five thousand units across the country, and you go on to other NMHC top fifty owners and operators, they call related and say how's Susu doing, and they give you know good feedback or candid feedback. It makes it easier for us to then build relationships with the BH of the world, you know, build relationships with the Morgan of the world or with Jonathan Rose or LNM Development or Goldman Sachs. Uh-huh. It makes it very, very easy then. So that experience initially was sort of the training ground for us to build a SUSU on a solid foundation. And we're immensely grateful for all the partners who get the good fortune to work alongside um, every day. So it's an interesting thing that you mentioned here from a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, and Stephen Ross from Related was on the podcast uh, six months ago. And Oh, wow. <laughs> what a great conversation. And Jeff, it, what's interesting with someone like Jeff in the way that you describe it, I, I, I don't know him well, but I know that he cares. This matters to him and he won't do it because it's nice. You got to do it because it's going to work and you have to be yes. tough. So one of the things is having a test kitchen and having a test kitchen with an open, honest and critical mentor to get you through the test kitchen situation and then one who's influential in the industry. So you exactly. hit it like a triple whammy with that guy. Yeah, we did. We did. And Jeff was, was really, really candid with us, tells us the way it is, give us feedback time and time again. And that's one of the things that actually led to our relationship with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, right? When they heard we were working with a reputable institution, like related, and someone like Jeff could say, we put them through this pain, we put them through that pain, we asked them to do this, and they came back every time and did everything we asked them to do. Now, working with a GSC like Freddie and Fannie um, becomes easier because they know that they could trust us and collaborate with us. It's been one of the best decisions and we're just grateful for folks like Jeff Brodsky and the rest in the industry that have mm-hmm. just made sure we produced something of quality that creates that win-win construct. Cool. And so let's drill on a couple places here. First, I'm going to talk about Promise Homes and then I want to talk about the GSEs because Promise Homes, and we're doing work with John Hope Bryant right now. Um, wow. And, <laughs> and our listeners won't know, but this is single family rental. So in an SFR business, talk, but they're still renting. So same model, same issue. Does this then get them towards home ownership as a goal? That's the precise goal. So Promise Homes is run by John Hope Bryan, you know, one of the largest minority-led institutions for single-family renters in the country. And John's idea has always been, how do we get people a credit score? Um, and how do we get them on that journey to wealth building? Mm-hmm. And there was a perfect synergy with a company like us, Asusu, because what we were able to do with John is then work with all those single family renters, help them report their rental data. And now we've seen cases of some of them going on to get a mortgage, right? And that's the story we want to tell. That's the journey we are all on. The other thing John does, I believe, is that as your credit score increases, your rent will reduce by a marginal but meaningful amount. Precisely. So there's an extra win-win there. Okay, so then talk about Fannie and Freddie and how do they fit within the ecosystem of this? Now, they're lending to everybody, so they touch everybody, but how does that fit the story that you've told? 
So Freddie and Fanny obviously are under the guidance of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, FHFA. And FHFA's mandate to them was how do we create equitable housing for folks, right? And one of the key part of that is also financial identity and improving credit scores. So Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae saw a program like Isuzu as an opportunity to help people establish and build their credit scores. And if they do choose to do that one day, they'll get access to the greatest wealth building assets we have in the United States, which is home ownership, mm-hmm. right? So that's, that's the hypothesis. So Freddie and Fannie provided incentives to Isuzu's borrower um, clients, which are their borrowers, to essentially do rent reporting at a discount, or in Fanny's case, no cost at all. So they've been a great partner to innovate with mm-hmm. and really focus on their duty to serve and create liquidity in the marketplace, but mm-hmm. also help renters get one day to wealth building opportunities or just a good credit score. Yeah. One thing that's interesting that you're describing, it's, it comes up in leading voices often because I'm a fan of the multifamily industry, is that there's a multifamily business ecosystem and that you've used and leveraged the overall ecosystem that wants you to be successful because it's going to help them. Some mm-hmm. other industries aren't an ecosystem, so every sale is, every sale or every bit of growth is stuttered and independent of each other. Mm-hmm. But here you have a business that does have places that it must be collaborating anyhow, so you're fit right into that, and it made your timetable work as quickly as it has. You got it. That's precisely what we've done. The FHFA had a mandate to the GSEs, right, which controls the liquidity, down to the lenders, which wants our data for an ESG story, down to the borrowers who are our clients, and down to the renters, which we can help build wealth for. So what we always think about at ASUS is the stakeholder map. And to my point earlier, thinking about this concept of justice capitalism, how do you create that win, win, win outcome? Yeah. And that's what we focus on every day at the company. How do we make sure everyone wins? It's one thing we talk about on Leading Voices all the time. And I hadn't, I say this again and again, that two of the dirty words in the English popular culture is landlord and developer. Let's add tenant to that as well. We have work to do to change those terms, and that's part of what you're doing. That's really it. And I'm not doing it in a pick-sniffing way, right? I'm not putting people down because it's the language we've been socialized with. Rather, it's like reimagining what's possible, reimagining the language we leverage. And there's a huge opportunity with that, you know, like, I have been trying to move away from the word minority, right? To things like underserved or underestimated. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when we say like, okay, African-Americans are minority uh, or black people are minority, but that's actually not true because you have 1.3 billion people on the continent of Africa. Yeah. Right. So we, I think we just got to be very careful with our words because it does something to us psychologically as human beings. And then the message we, we, we pass, you know, sends across, it also does something. So, you know, it's it's a constant and a perpetual reflection for us to reimagine what's actually possible that works for us. And I think we have a unique opportunity because I do fundamentally believe we reside in the greatest country on the surface of this earth. And 
all of our assignments is truly to make it more perfect. And I'm really, really excited about that. It's a wonderful comment and a wonderful goal. Three more questions. One, what does Susu mean? How do you get that name? Where's that come from? Isusu is from the West African culture in Nigeria, which means if you want to go fast, you go alone. But if you want to go far, you fundamentally go together. Makes sense now? Oh my God. Well, it fits everything we've talked about. Like I did, you have a theme and we have a theme, so they fit together. <laughs> Second question, what's next? So let's say you you get this going in the multifamily rental market, you get credit scores improving. Everyone starts reporting, so therefore there's a bit more financial justice in our system. How do you leverage that? Where does this go next? What we are fundamentally doing is taking people on this journey of financial identity, which is what we're doing today, to eventually wealth building. We see a world whereby someone like Wemimo that doesn't have a credit score can establish or build his credit score with rental payments get access to cheaper quality financial product. That could be a auto loan, that could be a student loan, that could be a better APR credit card. And one day, if he wants to go get a mortgage, have a good credit score to do that. One of the other things I'm excited about is also our work in student housing, whereby we can go to student housing and say, students can get a credit score, a good degree in one hand and a great credit score on the other hand. Essentially, my, what we are trying to do is simple. Graduate people from financial identity to get access to good quality products, which is the true test for wealth building. That's all we're trying to do. There's a lot of room for that to keep going. You, it, it feels like your foundation of renters, rent reporting is a strong one, but right. the more services you can bring to that population, the smarter people can become about how to handle their financial stuff. The more we can get rid of some of those stress points in our culture, the more people can start winning. Matt, it goes back to exactly what I said earlier on. The solutions we need to start thinking about should be on a simple premise. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your color, the color of your skin is or what your financial identity is. Right. What we need to try as much as possible is to play the Hippocratic role. Do no harm. And that's what we fundamentally stand for at ASUSU. How can we control that someone has a good credit score? And even said differently, if we establish and build your credit score for you on a monthly basis and you're about to get evicted, we give you rent relief that keeps a roof over your head. And now you're stable and now you're about to make a big purchase. ASUSU is offering that service and a different financial services institution is offering that service. Which one would you choose? Mm -hmm. Oh, ASUSU. Thank you. You got it. So that's what we're doing. It's as simple as that, right? Taking people on a continuum and plead to do no harm as much as you can and create that win-win construct is why we're in business. And one thing that I always tell people and, you know, I learned, you know, from a great artist recently is representation and being on the table is not liberation. Representation is currency. And with the power and with the resources we have, how are we going to spend that currency? And the spending of that currency should be to give people a fighting chance, right? Yeah. You know, if my child is from the slums of Lagos, Nigeria, it matters more to me, right, to make sure that child gets a fighting chance. You know, if I see a child in a place like, you know, 
grafting North Dakota, and that child is not related to me. It matters more to me for that child to get a fighting chance because we are all one big tapestry of this human family. And that's what we control for Ida Susu. It sounds like financial best. Yeah. And it sounds like do no harm is the least worst. That's the worst case of what you're doing. You're getting up to me, do no harm gets you up to sea level, but you're now creating project product that gets you 10%, 20% over sea level. So people could breathe. Exactly. Do no harm is the foundation and that's how you build a mansion. And right now I feel like we're building our mansion on a sinking sand and we want to be the example of showing you can build your mansion on a, on a solid foundation. Thank you. Last question on leading voices is always your advice, guest advice to a young person getting into the real estate business. Three things. Number one, be caught trying. Regardless of what anyone tells you, my co-founder and I, were 326 people said no to us, but today we run a company of close to 200 people valued at a billion dollars. Anything is possible if you just wake up every day and be caught trying. Number two, nothing worth doing is worth doing alone. At Isusu, our mantra is if you want to go fast, you go alone. Or if you want to go far, you go together. It's important for you to always go together with like-minded people. The last thing is America is too big for small dreams. We want to have the dream of Martin Luther King and the execution of people like Jeff Bezos. So think big. Those are my three core advices. Amazing advice. Wamimu, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for what you're doing. Appreciate your being on the podcast and we will keep talking. Thank you so much, Matt. Take good care and such a delight to be on the show. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, to share an episode with a friend or get them to subscribe. If they're podcast wary and not sure how to find and subscribe on their phone, go ahead and take their phone in your hand and subscribe for them. And add another few of your favorite podcasts to their list to get them started. They'll thank you for it. You can also find episodes of the show on our website, which you can find at zrgpartners.com slash leading voices. And if you have comments or discussion about this episode or leading voices in general, or if you're seeking help in real estate human capital solutions, recruiting or consulting especially, please contact me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. Thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices.